Well, let me invite you now to open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 24. And we'll be looking at the first uh, 12 verses, and then we'll drop down to cover another section in the same chapter. So Luke 24, you know, when you study the, the resurrection of Christ, uh, the Gospels kind of give us the, the story in stereo. And so it's kind of nice to study them, them all and blend them all together. But uh, we're just going to be looking primarily at uh, Luke's description of this under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. So uh, we will focus beginning in Luke chapter 24, verse 1. So we read, but on the first day of the week at early dawn, they came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared. So we're not told who the they are, but we know in the preceding context that it's a group of women. So if you look back at Luke chapter 23, for example, verse 49, they were at the cross where Jesus was. Verse 49, it says, And all his acquaintances and the women who accompanied him from Galilee were standing at a distance seeing these things. And this is just a reference to their seeing, obviously, the, uh, the, the suffering of our Lord on, on the cross of Calvary. And then if you drop down to verse 55 of chapter 23, Now the women who had come with him out of Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and perfumes, and on the Sabbath day they rested according to the commandment. So clearly again, the they in verse 1 of chapter 24, bringing the spices are the women. So these are the women who were at the cross. These are the women who were with Nicodemus and, Jeho- and, and uh, Joseph when they took the body of Jesus down from the cross and took Him to bury Him in the tomb. The women were there. They never left. They were there from the cross. They followed the party, the burial party, and they followed them as they took the body to the particular grave, Joseph's tomb. And they were there. They were watching it all. Uh, So the women were the ones in verse 1 who early on the first day of the week, early dawn, they came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared. These women are very uh, unique in their devotion to Christ. They want to complete in their minds the uh, burial process. To, they're bringing their own spices. They're coming to anoint the Lord again, even though Nicodemus had already done that with Joseph's help. But their devotion is incredible. Um, they have returned from Friday evening when Jesus was buried. They went back home. They prepared their spices. They rested on the Sabbath day. And now early Sunday morning, the first opportunity they have, they're back out on the street. They're on the road. They're heading to the tomb. It's kind of interesting when you stop and think about these women because where are the men? Where are the disciples? 
Possibly they were so bewildered and confused by the crucifixion and death of our Lord, they're dazed, they're depressed, totally at a loss to understand what's going on. I mean, their entire world had been turned upside down. All their expectations of Christ setting up a kingdom on earth, ruling as a monarch, as the king of the Jews, and them jockeying to see who would sit on his right and on his left. And that whole concept of a kingdom, of course, never materialized. In fact, it was shattered. Their Messiah was murdered. Their teacher tortured. Their conqueror conquered and crucified. And these brave men are now thinking that probably they're next. So they're full of fear. They're cowering in a room probably. Fear can sap your energy and make you inactive and sluggish and lethargic and lifeless. Their fear basically immobilized them. They're hiding. They still had not yet come to grips with the reality of what had happened. Jesus was dead but not the women. Now Joseph, of course, uh, who had been a secret disciple, asked Pilate for the body after Jesus died on Friday afternoon around 3 o'clock. He and Nicodemus, both of these men were very high up in the Sanhedrin. They were very wealthy. They were prominent. They were leaders. And these two men, particularly Joseph, came out of being a secret disciple. He came out of the closet, so to speak, joined with Nicodemus. Nicodemus had brought a hundred pounds of, of uh, myrrh and alloys to uh, anoint the body of Jesus for burial. A hundred pounds. And that was normally a large amount for very important people. And you can understand, obviously, they viewed Jesus in a very incredible light. They took the body of Jesus down from the cross, bloody, bruised, They bound it in linen wrappings, pouring in the spices as they overlaid the wrapping around the body of our Lord. They had carried it to the tomb, which is nearby. Uh, Jesus was crucified near a garden. And they put the Lord in Joseph's own new, new tomb, which is very close by in the garden. And, uh, and there they laid him. And then they rolled the stone over the, the front. They had spent considerable time with the body of our Lord, uh, wrapping it, preparing it, carrying it, absolutely convinced he was dead. There's no possibility of a swoon theory because when they're, they're hands on the body of our Lord and they're watching, they're wrapping, they're, they're carefully observing him. There was no heartbeat. There was no more blood. There was no groan. There was no twitch. There was no evidence at all of life. Obviously, they would have observed it. They were probably with him, I would guess, for at least an hour. But no sign of life at all. But we read in verse 1 that the women are now bringing more spices. Why is that? Well, there's several reasons for why the women are bringing their spices. 
It was uh, customary for bodies that had been badly injured to require several applications of spices to help delay the inset of just death and the decay of the body. So possibly that was in mind. But I think also, and maybe even more importantly, is just out of their love and devotion to Christ. They honor Him in death as they honored Him in life by adding their own spices that they have bought, that they have collected to bring, and lovingly and tenderly to add that to His burial cloth. They showed the tenderness of their love because they cherished the Lord throughout His ministry, probably like Mary as opposed to Martha, but they probably sat at His feet just listening to the Lord expound these incredible parables and truths. They just soaked it in. They followed Him and, and observed His miracles, healings, casting out demons. They saw the Lord weep over Jerusalem. And they saw the Lord weep when Lazarus had died. And then they saw Him raise Him from the dead. Their hearts were, were welded to the Lord Jesus. They loved Him. They followed Him. They cherished Him. And now because of their devotion, they have not the fear of the disciples, but they come with a token of their love when they bring these spices and anoint Him. This is not the first time women had anointed the Lord. The Gospels record several other occasions when women come and, and uh, expend their valuable perfume and, and anoint the Lord. Mary, again, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, anointed his feet with expensive ointment, wiped his feet with her hair. This is how they showed their love to the Lord, both in, in life and now in death. These women are showing their devotion to the Lord. I think just at the outset, what, a, what an incredible example they are for us to love the Lord, to serve the Lord, to be willing to, to go out of the way to show our, our appreciation and love and devotion and cherish how we cherish the Lord. These women are certainly a godly example of that. In verse 2, they says they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. This was shocking to them. They were there when they rolled the stone in front of it. And uh, who rolled it away? Well, it certainly wasn't them. They found it rolled away. The stone is described as being extremely large. And they were concerned as they're on their way to the tomb, they're racking their brain, how are we going to get the stone rolled away? Uh, whether they knew about the Roman soldiers there or not, obviously they wouldn't probably help them at all. But the stone was too, too heavy, too big for them to do. And so Matthew 28 verse 2 tells us that a severe earthquake had occurred right before the women came. And an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled the stone away and sat on it. So an angel was the one that rolled the stone away. So when they come, the stone is rolled away, and they're amazed because they don't know what's going on at all. So why, was the, why did the angel roll the stone away? Well, it certainly wasn't to let Jesus out. 
but it's to let the witnesses in. That's why he rolled the stone away. Again, before the women had arrived, this incredible earthquake had occurred. And now suddenly we find that these angels are going to show up and they're going to tell them about the resurrection of our Lord. But when the earthquake occurred, and I guess maybe at that time, maybe before the angel rolled it away, the soldiers, the Roman soldiers who were there were terrified. They became like dead men. And so they just passed out on the ground. Whether they were still there when the women showed up or not, don't know for sure. Maybe they were, but they'd be like dead men laying down on the ground. Women are just passing by them. So the Lord kind of knocked them out. And in doing so, He did it, no doubt, to protect the women and the disciples who are going to have access into the tomb without the guards trying to prevent it or anything like that. So we read in verse 8 then that when they entered, because a stone was rolled away, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? I love that. So the women go into the tomb. But they found no body there, so now they're bewildered. They're totally perplexed and confused. We were there when Jesus was laid in this tomb. There wasn't any chance that they're going to get lost. Like some people say, well, they just went to the wrong tomb. That explains the resurrection. No, they knew exactly where the tomb was. It wasn't that far away. They had been there on Friday evening. They didn't get lost. So they go to the right tomb. They enter in. There's no body there. And suddenly these two angels appear, and, and, it, and now understand it's still early dawn, so it's still kind of dark. The light is starting to, to appear, but it's still kind of dark. And suddenly these two angels appear in dazzling clothing. And the word dazzling here is actually used of a lightning flash in Luke 17. So that the dazzling clothing of these two angels, I mean, they appeared as just like being on a spotlight. I mean, their clothing is just bright and shining, lights just flowing out from them. And that would have terrified the women all the more. I mean, it's kind of dark. And then suddenly, boom, these two angels appear. And they're so bright, you probably have to cover your face. And in fact, they do bow their faces down to the ground, we're told. So, so they're probably shocked and startled and astonished by it, frightened by it, no doubt. Verse, 20, verse 5 says that they were, they were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground. And then the angel said to them in verse 5, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? And obviously the implication is Jesus is not dead. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He is the life. He's the resurrection and the life. And so they're just telling the woman, you're not going to find him in a tomb with dead people. He's not dead. He's alive. So why are you seeking the living one among the dead people? Living people don't live in tombs. And so he's just kind of making an obvious point to get their attention so Jesus had been raised in glory. He is, he is life itself. And, uh, and obviously, he's not, he's not in the tomb. It's empty. 
You know, it's interesting that to me that so many people try to find the living one among the dead. The Sanhedrin was trying to do that. They were trying to find the living God among all the, the dead aspects of their religion. I mean, they even, of course, uh, went to Pilate on, on the Sabbath day, Saturday, to set a Roman guard over the tomb to prevent anyone from stealing the body. But I mean, it's just totally a dead hope that they have. It's a, it's a dead theory. Psalm 2 says, He who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord scoffs at them. And how the wisdom of man turns the sinister plans of, of men upside down to actually establish His truth, and He works it for good. The very fact that the uh, soldiers were there was the proof that the disciples couldn't have stolen the body because the soldiers would have been there to stop them. So even though in their, in their zeal to prevent a theft, their actions actually prove the resurrection. And that's how God just makes sport of the folly of their plans. What's also kind of sad is that even though the, uh, the Sanhedrin went to Pilate to set the guard, because they remember Jesus saying that He would rise on the third day. And they, just, they didn't think that He would rise on the third day, but He thought, well, okay, the disciples may go and steal the body. What about the disciples? They don't remember any of that. At least the Sanhedrin remember the predictions of Jesus that He said He would rise from the dead. But the disciples, they don't remember any of that stuff. I mean, these guys, as they say, are not the sharpest knives in the drawer because they can't remember what Jesus told them many times that He would be crucified and be raised from the dead on the third day, but they don't remember it. So in a few short hours, all the scheming of the Sanhedrin to set the guard, all their evil plans will come tumbling down like the great temple of Dagon when Moses pulled on the pillars and the house came tumbling down. And so all their plans to prevent the resurrection of Christ or the theft of His body or whatever all imploded by the power of God. I think just as an application, I think we should certainly take hope because we live in a crazy world where it seems like the powers of evil are on the move and they're growing, they're increasing. There's a greater hostility to Christianity even within our own country. The potential for persecution and affliction, I think, is on the rise. But don't be fearful of that. I mean, we don't want it, but our God is still on the throne. They will not prevent God's will from taking place. All opposition to their plans ultimately will fall like a house of cards by the strong arms of the Lord that we are protected in His hands. And all their plots to destroy the church will be like the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin. The temple of Satan might stand today in our culture, but one day its doom is sure. I love what Luther wrote about it in one of his great hymns. And though this world with devil's fields should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, 
For lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. And what we see that in the plots of the Sanhedrin, all their attempt to prevent any rumor of the resurrection from going forward was turned totally upside down. But I think these words of the angels are still fitting. Why do you seek the living one among the dead? That's really what we ought to preach to the world around us. Why are you seeking the living one among the dead? Because that's what the world is trying to do. It's trying to seek the living God, a relationship with God. And yet they're trying to do it in all the dead works of their own work salvation religion. They're trying to find the living one among the dead. Among their own dead works, thinking that in some way they're going to find their way to God. The New Age is trying to find the living God within the dead mysticism of its own imagination. The wokeism of our own culture is trying to find the living God in, within the dead delusion of their own philosophies of social justice and gender confusion. The idea that in some way they can recreate a person. That's all deadness. It's dead thinking yet they're trying to find some kind of living association with a God through that. They try in their own spiritually dead and perverted values to uh, promote selective racial hatred, especially against whiteness, the woke people do. And, uh, and they're trying to find some kind of redemption and all that. You know, there is one time when the woke people admire and appreciate a white man. There is one time when they admire a white man, and that's when he's, he thinks he's a woman. And then they'll applaud him, then they'll approve of him. That's about the only time in our own culture. Seeking the living one among the dead. And this is what the gospel is the remedy for, is to seek the living one through the living one. Because he's alive. One well, verse 6, the angels say, He is not here, but he is risen. And so now they're telling the women what has actually happened that he's alive, he's not in the tomb, but he is risen from the dead. And then notice what they add to that. They say, uh, in verse 6, remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again, and they remembered his words. So see, the women didn't even remember that Jesus had prophesied that he'd be raised from the dead. So the angels say, remember, remember what the Lord had told you, remember the word of God. Remember the, what the Lord taught you was going to happen. That He would be crucified, and on the third day He would rise again. And then they remembered the words, and suddenly the lights came on. They understood that Jesus fulfilled what He said He would do, and He arose from the dead. The problem of their 
their anguish, their sadness, their turmoil in their heart was because they didn't remember the words of Christ. And what a, what a truth for us today. I mean, so many of our worries, so many of our anxieties and fears are because we simply forget the Word of God, the promises of Scripture. J.C. Ryle, an old Anglican a godly man that I love to read his writing, said, a dull memory is a common spiritual disease. And it's common because we all are afflicted with it. We forget. We forget the Word of God. And when we forget the Word of God, then we suffer the consequences of that short memory. We forget the promises. We forget the encouragement. We, f- we forget the, the convicting parts, the warnings. And we suffer spiritually because of it. Psalm 119, verse 11 says, Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. So oftentimes we find ourselves like the women. We have forgotten. But when we go back to the Word of God and what a blessing it is and how regular and committed we should be to go back to the Word of God, and then we remember like the women do. And then our fears are turned to joy. So in verse 9, says, and and." Returned from, uh, and they remembered his words, verse 8, and returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James. Also the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. But these words appeared to them as nonsense and they would not believe it. So they come back to the apostles and they still don't get it. And so they're still not believing that Jesus rose from the dead. Actually, in verse 11, it appears as nonsense to them, and they absolutely would not believe it. So they refused to believe it. But then verse 12, Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, and he saw the linen wrappings only, and he went away to his home marveling at what had happened. Now, whether he came to faith at that point or not, I don't know. But he's certainly marveling now. He saw the linen wrappings, but no body. So he at least goes there. And uh, we also know that after Peter leaves the tomb at this point, after verse 12, that Mary Magdalene apparently had gone with Peter back to the tomb. They came back and reported what the angels had told them. And then she's going back with Peter to the tomb to look again. And after Peter leaves, Mary's there basically by herself. Some other women will show up shortly thereafter. And she's there. And the Lord appears to Mary. So Mary is the very first person that sees the risen Lord Jesus Christ. It was Mary Magdalene. Mary, of course, as you remember, had 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 seven demons living in her. One demon, can you imagine the torment of mind and body that one demon can cause, much less seven? Demons can rack your body with pain and disease. Demons can infiltrate your mind with, with uh, anger, like the Gerizim demoniac that just wanted to, to kill himself. Another young man would throw himself in the water to drown himself. 
These demons just torture the mind. They just bend it and twist it. Can you imagine having seven of those filthy, unclean spirits, as they're called, and Jesus cast them all out? No wonder her heart was so devoted to the Lord Jesus. She was the first one to see the risen Lord. You can find that in some of the other Gospels. What's interesting about that, there's almost some irony there because in allowing a woman to be the first one to see the risen Lord, the Lord Jesus may be reversing the shame of Eve in the Garden of Eden who was the first to sin. And now by His mercy to the feminine sex, it's a woman who's the first to see the Lord Jesus. It was a woman who first sinned in the garden. It was also a woman who first saw the risen Lord in a garden. And so now the Lord is pouring out His love and mercy upon this woman. You know who the next one to see the Lord is going to be? The other women. And you know who the next one to see the Lord is going to be? Peter. He's going to reveal Himself to Peter in a personal audience with Peter. Hmm, I wonder why. Well, let's jump forward. Uh, we're going to skip the two disciples where the Lord appears to them on the way to Emmaus. Let's drop down to verse 33. It says, and, and they got up. This is referring to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus that Jesus joins their company. They don't recognize Him, but they invite Him to eat. So He goes in and eats with them and He's, t- he's teaching them things. And eventually they eat. The Lord breaks bread and blesses it. And then suddenly He, he manifests His appearance to them. So they see Him. They recognize Him. And then Jesus vanishes. And so now they're in Emmaus, I think about five miles away. So, so now they hightail it back. We've got to go tell the apostles. We've seen the risen Lord Jesus Christ. So now they come back to Jerusalem in, the, in verse 33. They got up that very hour, returned to Jerusalem, and found gathered together the eleven and those who were with them, saying, The Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. See, so already earlier in the day, the Lord had appeared to Peter, and Peter had told the other disciples, and they, weren't, they were thinking, well, you know, th- this is Peter. <laughs> you know, Peter has a tendency to exaggerate sometimes or whatever. But they weren't believing Peter. So the disciples understand they had the eyewitness of Mary Magdalene. They had the eyewitness of the other women. They had the eyewitness of Peter And now you add on the two eyewitnesses of these two disciples from Emmaus. They've got all these eyewitnesses around them, and they're still not believing it. They're still full of doubts. So again in verse uh, 34, saying, The Lord is really risen, has appeared to Simon. And they began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. And so now we find that They're all in this room and all these additional new reports are coming in of people seeing the Lord Jesus, the ones I've I've listed. And then we read in verse 36. Oh, by the way, 
when, when the Lord appeared to Peter, it was probably sometime that morning. Now, this is later in the day, on Resurrection Day. But he appeared to, to Peter probably sometime that morning. Why, why do you think he did that? I raised a question a while ago. Probably, I'm guessing, that Peter of all the disciples was the most distraught. Why? Because of his denials. In Caiaphas' courtyard, seeing Jesus through the light of that charcoal fire in the middle of the courtyard, and like wolves surrounding a little lamb, they were interrogating the Lord Jesus. And here Peter, big, strong, proud, bold, courageous Peter, gets his way. John actually gets him into the courtyard. And then a, a girl came up. Hey, you're one of his disciples. No, I'm not. Second time he denied it. Third time he denied it with, with cursing, with an oath. And in that darkness, Peter then, out of the shame of his heart, he looked across that courtyard towards Jesus. And Jesus was staring right at him, eye to eye. Jesus had heard his denials. And suddenly the guilt and the shame filled his heart. And he ran out weeping bitterly. Poor Peter. And then the Lord was crucified. And now he's dead. And the guilt and the burden and the heaviness on his heart was probably smothering him. And I think in showing compassion and mercy, Jesus appeared to Peter sometime that morning to restore fellowship, friendship, and forgiveness. Now it won't be late until later on at a meeting at the Sea of Galilee when the Lord will restore Peter back to useful ministry and service. That's going to occur later on. But to at least provide the restoration of fellowship and friendship, I think the Lord sought out Peter and appeared to him at that time. We read in verse 36, while they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst. Now some think that they were in a locked door room whether the door was locked, it was certainly closed. could very well have been locked. We don't know. But it says that Jesus stood in their midst. Again, He just appeared. It's one of the incredible things about the resurrection body that we can't really understand. It's definitely a physical body, but it definitely has powers and abilities that our physical body does not have. And so the Lord just appears in their midst and that, and then in verse 37, and they were startled and frightened. Well, of course they would be. You know, you're in a room and suddenly a man just appears out of nowhere. It's going to be a, a terrifying, frightening experience. And they thought, verse 37, they were seeing a spirit. In other words, a ghost. They still didn't understand the, the bodily resurrection, even though they've had all these reports, they're still not believing it. So they're thinking they're seeing the ghost of Jesus manifesting himself in the room. 
the departed spirit of Jesus. The body is dead somewhere, but his spirit has now arrived and, and materialized in, in their, right in the room in which they are. So they don't believe it's a physical body, newly raised from the dead, but an apparition of some kind, a phantom, a ghost in his image, his spirit that is now in their presence. And after all, because it just appeared, didn't walk through the door, they think they're justified. That's the only conclusion they can come up with. But their fears are the basis, are based on a faulty faith and understanding, of course. But they had to discount and disbelieve all the reports that they've heard to cling to their doubts. And apparently, they're still doing it. So in verse 38, Jesus said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? So they're troubled because this spirit just appeared and they're still having doubts about it. And then the Lord gives two proofs of His resurrection. Physical evidence and scriptural evidence. So in verse 38 and following, we see the physical evidence. He said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Now what would they see in His hands and His feet? They would see the nail prints. And why, why is that significant? This is the same body that hung on the cross. It's the same body that was dead. It's the same body. Look, the nail prints are in my hands and in my feet. This is not a spirit. This is a body. This is a real physical body that was raised from the dead. And then notice what he goes on to say in verse 39. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. I don't know if any of them took him up on the, the challenge or not, but he invites him to come up and, and feel me. I mean, you're going to feel real flesh, real bones. This is a real body. This is not a spirit. Spirit doesn't have flesh and bones. Notice the emphasis on, on just the material, physical side. Flesh and, and bones. And the Spirit doesn't have those, as you see, that I have. I mean, in their mind, if, if they came up and put their hands on the Spirit, their hands would just go through the Spirit. You know, because if it's not real flesh and bones, you, you know, you can... Your hand will go through him and back out him and to the side, and spirit's still there, but your hand you can't feel anything. So he's giving proof that it's a real physical body. And then he adds to that in verse 40. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? So now, they're starting to believe in joy and amazement, but they're kind of in that middle road. I mean, they believe it, but they don't believe it. So the, the joy is starting to sink in, the reality, the truth is starting to fill their hearts and minds. And so they're beginning to express and feel the joy and amazement. 
But it says they still couldn't believe it because of the joy and amazement. So they're, they're, they're transitioning from disbelief into belief. Their doubts are being transformed into a glorious delight in the reality of the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. Their uncertainty is fading into certainty. And then at the end of verse 41, he asked for something to eat. They give him a piece of broiled fish. He took it and ate it before them. And why did he do that? Because if a spirit, a spirit doesn't eat anyway, I mean a spirit, but if, if a spirit ate something, you would probably see the food visibly go down his throat into his stomach because you can see through a spirit. I don't know. But the Lord took the fish and he ate it as further proof that he was a real physical, he had a real physical body at this point in time. So they gave him the fish, he ate it, it disappeared in his mouth, which it wouldn't do probably if a spirit was trying to eat it. And then starting in verse 44, the Lord now turns from the physical proof to the scriptural proof. Now he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written in me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So now he reminds them of what he has told them, and then he points them to the Old Testament in verse 44, the law of Moses, the prophets, the Psalms, and he said, all that they have spoken of me must be fulfilled. So that's the ultimate proof. The Scripture said it, prophesied it, and it came to pass exactly as God said that it would. So there's physical proof, and then there's scriptural proof but for the scriptural proof to really be proof in their hearts and minds look at verse 45 he had to open their minds to understand the scriptures this is sovereignty of god no one understands the word of god unless the spirit of god gives them eyes to see this is not a free will decision of men this is a work of almighty god it's just like uh, we should always pray when we open the Word. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from Thy law. It's the Spirit of God that gives us understanding. It's the Spirit of God that shows us the glory of Christ in the Gospel. Without the Spirit of God, I won't believe it. It's foolishness to me. But the Lord opened their minds to see Christ in the Old Testament. And they believed. And they were empowered by that truth to go forth and proclaim Jesus Christ. See, the doors of their room were shut and the doors to their minds were shut. And God invaded both. He came into the room miraculously, powerfully, and He came into their minds. Both were shut and locked. But God just sovereignly passed through and brought His presence, brought His life, brought His truth 
so that now they understood the gospel. They understood about Christ, that he's raised from the dead. Well, as we wrap this up, uh, one of the glorious things about celebrating the resurrection of Christ, there's many, many glorious things about it, but it also sets forth the truth that since he arose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, where he is right now at this moment, Christ, the living Lord, glorified, resurrected, is at the right hand of God the Father, and one day he's coming again. This risen, living Lord Jesus Christ is alive, and one day he's coming again to judge the living and the dead. Are you ready for that day? There's proof. He arose. You can throw out all the objections that you have, but they all fall apart. The witnesses, the evidence, all of it shows that Christ is alive. He's alive right at this moment, looking down upon us. He's coming again, but are you ready? Have you turned from your sins to receive the free gift of eternal life that Jesus is ready to give to any sinner who repents and turns to Christ alone for salvation? He's in heaven. He has made you the offer. You must come. You cannot get to heaven because you're raised by Christian parents. You cannot get to heaven because you're here in this service today. You cannot get to heaven because you've been baptized or you're a member of a church. You must personally, individually acknowledge your sin against Almighty God that you deserve His judgment and then believe with all your heart that Jesus died on the cross. He paid the penalty. He rose triumphantly on the third day. He's now in heaven to forgive any and every sinner that comes to Him. Would you come to the Lord Jesus even now? Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day when you can have all of your sins forgiven, that you can have the hope of everlasting life, that there's only one who gives it, and it's the one who died and rose again on the third day. He's there now. He'll hear your prayers if you but call upon Him. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's what we celebrate on this resurrection day, that Christ now is the author and source of salvation who gives glory to those who will come to Him in faith. We celebrate it today because without the resurrection, there's no Christianity. But because He arose from the dead, we believe it by the power of God. Now let us go forth and proclaim it that Jesus lives that's our hope. That's the gospel. That's what the world needs to hear and believe. That Jesus died for sinners and rose again on the third day. And He's the only one who can save a sinner if they call upon Him. So may that be our message to the world 
as the Lord now launches the disciples with the Great Commission, that commission is still ours. And may the Spirit of God fill us not only with the joy of our own salvation, but the joy of sharing that salvation with those who need to hear it so that Christ will continue to build His church. Well, let's close in a word of prayer. Father God, we thank You, Lord, for this uh, wonderful day to remember the resurrection of our Lord. But we remember the cross, the death, the tomb, the empty tomb, and then the resurrection. Because, Lord, all of this is the gospel. All of this is the good news of how a sinner can find peace with God, how a sinner can find forgiveness, how a sinner who deserves hell can find their soul and ultimately their body in heaven forever. It's all through what Your Son did for us on the cross. Because of His great love, He died for sinners and bore all of the wrath of God for all of their sins for whoever will turn and believe in Him. So Lord, if there's any here today that do not know You, Lord, would Your Spirit open their heart as You open the heart of Lydia. Give them faith. Open their eyes to see their need of Christ and grant them faith that they might trust in Him. And for those of us who know You, Lord, again, fill us with the joy that the disciples had of realizing that You're not dead. You're alive. And You said You would never leave us nor forsake us. You're always with us. Always. And what a gracious, wonderful promise that is. So help us to walk and live and, and rejoice in the truth that our Lord is risen from the dead. And we give you glory in His name. Amen.